hey, hey, thanks very much indeed for showing up for this episode seven of The Wrap, the podcast that ensures that you get the most out of UK and Irish horse racing. I'm Peter Bell, and in this episode of The Wrap, we're going to take a look at UK racing's often fraught and abusive relationship with social media through the eyes of trainer Kim Bailey. We're then going to have a look back at a couple of incidents that have caught my attention on the race course since we last had one of our little get-togethers, and then we'll finish off with a bit of crystal ball gazing about races that are coming up in the next few days. I wanted to do an initial take on racing's relationship with social media, since I believe that most, if not all of the RAPS listeners, will interact with our sport via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at some point, as well as via traditional media and attending meetings in person, of course. Most of you, I trust, will find this a positive experience, enabling you to have a greater insight into racing, often via first-hand accounts of events by those right at the coalface of our sport – jockeys, trainers, owners, journalists, etc. But you'd have to be deaf and blind not to appreciate that for some, the internet is their dodgeball, and participants in racing are their opponents, to be shown no mercy – Anyone with even a passing interest in our sport will have heard of the recent vile, misogynistic abuse heaped on Safi Osborne, for example. And whilst one hopes your initial reaction is revulsion, it's easy, and natural even, to quickly turn your attention to your punt in the next Haydock. I wanted a more intense examination of this whole arena, and I couldn't think of anyone better than Kim Bailey to provide such an insight. Why Kim? Well, for starters, he's given over 40 years of his life to the sport, And, as we'll hear, he's seen pretty much everything in that period, from poison pen letters back in the day, to the aggressive thoughts of the Twitterati in 2021. He's ridden the rollercoaster of fame, from early stellar success as a trainer in the 80s, with the likes of Master Oates, Alderbrook and Mr Frisk, to the fallow years of training in Northamptonshire, to the latter-day resurgence with Cheltenham Festival winners such as Dana, Imperial Aura, and the Ascot Grade 1 Clarence House Chase winner of last January, First Flow. Those experiences alone would give anyone some kind of unique take on how the world might put you on a pedestal in the good times, but then go on to tell you how much you suck now when you've trained just four winners in a season. For the purposes of this podcast examination of the mashup between racing and social media though, Kim's daily blog for me was The Clincher. Now for those of you not familiar with Bailey's blog on his stables website, it's a funny, accessible, but always very honest take on racing, wider sport and life in general. I am quite the fan of his daily postings and have read with interest slash disappointment the entries where he goes into detail about the abuse he and his retained jockeys receive on social media as an almost accepted part of their working life. So, as is the usual rap way of working, an exchange of emails with Kim saw me visiting his stables at Thorndale Farm, high up in the Cotswolds just outside Cheltenham recently, for what I hope you will find is an illuminating chat about the worlds of racing and social media. Check out what he had to say. Coming at interaction with the public from a historical perspective, you've been training since 1979. Give us some sort of idea about how people or the general public interacted with you from back in the day, back in back in the, in the, in the late 70s. How did they talk yeah, to you it, back in those days? It, it, interesting enough, and when I first started training, um, we were very much left alone. Um, and, but a horse ran badly or a jockey was given a bad ride. 
we might have had the odd phone call. Those days, people didn't really get hold of your telephone number. You didn't have a mobile phone, so it was very easy. But the extraordinary thing was that you used to get letters from irate punters, um, and you know we had death. I mean, I worked for Fred Rimel, and I remember a horse of his getting beaten one day, and I mean, the, the, within four days, he had death threats through the post. And you think, well, you know, where, where's this all coming from? And uh, yeah, we, we we used to get them um, on a, you know, you get two or three a year. Um, and when I first received one, I, you know, I did think. I did take it quite seriously. Um, and strangely enough, the only hint you had of where they came from was probably the postcode because there was never an address or a name inside. It was something you got used to once you realised actually that person probably didn't mean what he said. Um, and he he was doing as an event of aggravation. That's something he'd obviously lost some money on, was quite keen to get his own back on you. Um, things obviously changed dramatically since then. You know, I started up a website in 1995, 96, and uh, with a view to, to I realised quite quickly that, you know, um, a brochure was out of date day of printing. Um, so hence I set up a website and started from there. And then I um, moved on slightly further and did a more in-depth website. And then I had an area where you could put comments on. And the comments after a horse ran badly were so bad, which obviously other people could read as well, uh, that I actually took it down. Um, and I felt that was something that was really sad um, because I put that comment page on really for a reason uh, that I thought we'd get um, positive vibes about racing and, and people actually would be interacting with each other about what was good at racing. And of course, no one ever puts good news on anything. So I got lots of um, really unfortunate messages, which of course then people strapped into and just carried on, made it, made it um, more unattractive as you went on. Um, so I had to take that down. And, uh, you know, I always reply to everybody. I always have done. Um, so if anybody sends me an email or a telephone number or a fax or, t you know, in the days when we used to have faxes, they'd always get a reply from me. Um, and I always um, hugely supported my sport. And if I could ever try and turn someone around from the aggravation they had and the hate they had for that particular moment would, would be something I want to go and do. And on occasions, I've, you know, I've, I've I've had moments when someone's rung me on a non-withheld number, which is probably their mistake, um, and I was able to get hold of them. And if I'm stuck in a traffic jam for half an hour, I'd, I'd give them half an hour of my um, better side to try and persuade them that actually life wasn't as bad as what they were thinking. Um, and, you know, we've had some pretty horrendous tweets and Twitters and God knows what else, and social media really does give you a hard time. But underneath it, those particular people, when you actually talk to them, are, are, are really embarrassed by what they've done. Um, it's, a, it's an instant reaction, um, and people sit there... Uh, keyboard warriors are rightly called um, they've had something gone wrong they've had a drink and there's you know, frustration they're just going to bang and fire it out I mean you come across as fairly sort of phlegmatic in your responses to this this sort of abuse is there something inside of you that likes to say I'm, I'm going to give you a real mouthful back because you don't know what you're talking about or do you have to always take the, yeah, well, I, the think, long I, game? I don't think you need to be going the same route as what they've done to you I think it's terribly important that you actually hold your tongue and, um, and rather than fire back straight away with a with an abusive text message back which was not achieve it achieves absolutely nothing you know you want to give it five minutes sit down and think about it and try and, and, and do it the other way around it's terribly easy to get into a, a, a fist match if you want to put it that way on, on social media which doesn't do you any good because it sits there it's there forever for everybody to read and, and it just makes you look an absolute idiot and the difference is the people who send me the messages are usually hiding with someone under a false name or they're, they're doing it in a different direction so they're not genuine or they can't be found out whereas if I reply I'm there for everybody to see so therefore you have to be very conscious of the fact that what you're saying in return if you are going to return the conversation you are saying the right things 
And if I have something that attacks me and, and, and I have a lot of emails, et cetera, or even more so this recently, an awful lot of um, hits on, on my Twitter page because uh, um, we were accused of supposedly doping a horse last week. Yeah. I mean, you know, those people who sent me, I mean, they, they hadn't read anything. They were saying that I was a complete crook. Well, I mean, sorry, but at the end of it, you know, um, that is not the case. So it's what they want to make out of it. And it's usually only one or two people are doing it. And, and actually, when you go back through it, there's only two people who are causing the aggravation. But they've read it as far as they could do to make it sort of um, as obvious as possible. And can you almost predict when the temperature is going to get raised in terms of these sort of interactions? I mean, you know, clearly sort of last week was not a sort of stellar week and your name was being dragged through the mud then. You know, could you also say, here it comes, yeah, get, get rid of it? It was it, very it, obvious it was going way. to happen. Now, if I have a, a, um, an odds-on favourite beaten, um, I can guarantee that my, effects, my my phone will get a text message within 30 seconds. Um, and there was a certain day at Leicester when I had a, a horse that was beaten in a boys' race. It was only beaten a neck, but I mean, the boy didn't ride it particularly well. But even so, it was just why it's a boys' race. And I mean, these guys got to learn. And I was standing there uh, walking into the unsightly enclosure. My phone immediately uh, rang with a withheld number. You know, this chap was giving me dog's abuse down the phone. So, I, you know, I, I answered him and said, look, sorry, mate, but I'm in the only... I'm walking the unsaddled enclosure not now's not the time to ring ring me later if you felt like it but please don't ring me on a withheld number well he actually proceeds to ring on a redial i think every five minutes and uh, you know i started answering him and then actually i handed it around the bar at the owners and trainers um, so <laughs> alan king had his chance to talk to him nigel tristan davis had his talk and the guy you know was finally by the time he finished he rang up and apologized and you think well, where's it all come from clearly money you know, it comes back to, to betting, and if you've had a favourite beat and somebody's lost a packet potentially, you know, if I bet, then it's my my fault. You know, if you take into everything, you win and you lose, and treat the imposters both the same. But do you think there's, there's anything? Do you actually ever give it any thought in terms of what is the psyche behind these people? Take away the financial aspect. What makes somebody want to actually get on the phone and abuse people like that? When you when you go back and you start looking at the history of the people who give you abuse on Twitter, they've given everybody abuse. Uh-huh. So they're they're obviously pretty unhappy people. And uh, you know the people who gave me abuse last week. You go back through their account. Everybody they've ever dealt with in racing, they managed to give some sort of nasty moment to. So they're the same people every single time. And they're probably I I, I can't judge where or what they what they do. But at the end of it, they are obviously angry people who are disappointed by something. And their only way of venting their, their anger is to do it on social media. Um, it's an easy way out again. Vent uh, um, on social media because it's just as easy and simple as that. You come across fairly sort of relaxed uh, as anyone can be about this. How do you feel this affects other people to win the racing firmament? Oh, there's no doubt about it. Jockeys are really badly hit, hit by it, especially young jockeys who don't Indeed. know what they're doing. And I, I had a, um, a trainer who set up training about five or six years ago, um, and uh, you know he's a very successful young trainer, but he got. Um, a lot of abuse his first season his father rang me up who's a mate of mine and said look my son is not coping with this you know what do you do and I said you know he said to me do you get these things I said I get them the whole time um, and you've got to walk away from them I said you just you read it if you have to read it and laugh about it because otherwise how do you deal with it um, and um, I went to go and see this particular person and talk him through what I do or what I did on these occasions and, and uh, he's now pretty chilled and relaxed about it you know, everybody in every sport gets it. I hate to think what football managers get or football players get. I mean, you've only got to read the, the social media on cricketers. They get it when they go out, get, get out and do or drop a catch or whatever. There's a whole raft of people out there who spend their entire time actually abusing people. Um, and it's, you know, modern social media now has made it so much easier to go and do. 
And do you think this is something that racing should address in, in as much as it can do? Is this something that you think racing could be doing more about or something that it needs to address more, more specifically? I think behind the scenes, racing are doing um, as much as they can do. I mean, certainly the, the racing schools, when they have these young kids coming through, they teach them how to deal with the various things that happen on social media. And all the jockeys have to go on a refresher courses at Newmarket um, to get their licenses re-evoked or whatever. Uh, and they're taught then or give them some sort of idea to ha- how to handle it. There's only so far you can go because at the end of it, you can't stop the people from doing it. And when the day stops, you can put a, a firewall against it so they can't come through. Then it's going to be a different ball game. That's never going to happen. So I think we've just got to take it on the chin and realise actually it's going to happen whether we like it or not and uh, manage it in the way we can. And I think racing is doing a pretty good job on it. And I have to say, the politicians you read about, I mean, some of the things they get sent, I mean, that, that, that really must be terrifying mm. um, because they are much more on the open, open air than we are. We are doing something we absolutely love. Um, and uh, with 90% of the people who are involved in our sport or read about our sport are on our side, whereas a politician probably has got 95% of the people against him, so, or her, whichever the case might be. And so, you know, social media has moved into a really difficult position, I think, because, I mean, you have a, you have a situation with this Bake Off girl on the weekend, you know, who's 19 years old, and she's a vegan, and she rides horses as a hobby. Well, I mean, the vegans think that she shouldn't be riding a horse, but frankly, you know, why does, if you're a vegan, you can do what you like. I mean, it's, it's all about eating, surely. You can be as explicit as you like here, and we'll put a, a warning up on the podcast if it goes out. Give us some of the examples that you personally have had to face that you've heard about. I've had uh, text messages and Twitter messages saying that they will burn my stables down, break the horse's legs, burn my house, break my children, kill my children. And, you know, you think, well, where are they all coming from? Um, and, you know, one person rang me up and said, I'll be down in half an hour. I said, I said well, I'll be waiting to see you. <laughs> Do you want a cup of coffee when you arrive? And it completely flummoxed him. And uh, it's, but, you know, when you start reading those sort of things, when it starts getting personal situation with your family, then you do begin to wonder where it's coming from. And interesting enough, I had one person ring me up and abuse me. I was on the way back from the races one day, and he kept on ringing me, and he was just so bad. It was, you know, just, you know, he, and I, you know, he, he then didn't ring me on a withheld number, so I had his number. And I rang up a friend of mine who happened to be in the police force, and they rang him back and said, I'm, you know, I'm PCC, and so I said, have you been sending abusive message to Mr. Bailey? And he said, no, it wasn't me, my phone went to somebody else. I then immediately rang the number back and said, look, I've just reported you to the police, and the police will be in touch with you. Oh, no, my phone has been taken by somebody else. It's the same voice. Yes. Um, but, you know, you suddenly panic by the fact that someone's done something about you. I mean, we've we looked at the downside of social media. Clearly, there's an upside to it. What do you get from, from social media? Obviously, your blog is very entertaining. Does it help leverage relationships with sponsors? Does it help you attract more owners? Does it help sort of retain owners? What are the wider, um, if you like, sort of strategic aspects behind your use of social media? Um, interesting, that really, that because I, I started, as I say, I started my, my website in 1996. Um, and then when I was going through a particularly bad time in Northamptonshire, I then started the daily blog because at the end of it, I was in a situation then when I was hemorrhaging at the seams. Everything was going wrong. We know the horses are disappearing. Um, we went from 95 horses to, you know, 30 and the horses, when the horses weren't winning, things were going wrong. And I then realized that the only way I was going to get myself, kept myself in the name in the press was, it was to write a blog on a daily basis. Uh, the more controversial I could be in it, the more it was going to get read. And then obviously when we moved here, you know, we moved here with 25 horses and most people by that stage told me to pack up and do something completely different. Um, I'm very stubborn and don't believe in working away from anything. So you know, again, the blog was something that you know, we pushed furiously. It has brought in a huge amount of business. An awful lot of owners have come off it. 
You know, I've got a yard sponsor who's Domsted Horrell, who are a feed merchant. You know, one of the reasons they've come in because it, you know they wanted to be on on the on the blog. Um, they want I, I have a camera which goes on the top of the guts. They're on that. You know, it it, uh, it has its huge. It's a huge benefit at providing you do it every single day. You just can't do it once a week. It has to be done on a daily basis. I actually enjoy doing it, so it's very easy for me. You know, I, I, in the past, I've written for the Sporting Life and. Um, I write the occasional column for the horse and hound. My English might not be very good. My spelling's even worse. But you know it's me when I'm doing it. Maddie, my secretary, who's brilliant at it, she does it when I can't do it. She probably gets more um, hits than I do. But the only thing is she's, you know, her English is an awful lot better than mine. <laughs> and it should be entertaining. I'm trying to promote my sport. And I'm trying to promote my yard. And I'm trying to you know promote my business. And therefore, to talk about horses all day long is actually dead dull for the majority of people. Um, so if I can move on to other sports, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about cricket. Um, I have a son who plays cricket as well. And, uh, you know, that gives me a huge amount of pleasure. My assistant, Matt Nichols, is big into football. I'm not. So he'd have a conversation with my owners in here, which is completely over my head. Then I have other owners who walk in here and talk about cricket. It goes straight over top Matt's head. So it all, you know, it all works as a, as a, you know, as a interaction between everybody. And I think the website has been a huge part of it. I suppose the final question is, given that, is it any, any thoughts of setting up a podcast? Um, do you know? Funny enough, we had, we did. I do an April Fool's joke every single year, and I, I always try and do something completely different and try and catch people out. And over the years, we've had some great results. You know, we've we had a I found a, a lamb with AP written on the side of it when we were lambing here. So I then it was the year that AP McCoy retired. So I. I I went on my website on April the 1st and said AP was becoming my assistant and we're rebranding everything at Thorndale. Obviously, there was a picture of me holding the sheet with AP written on it. And, you know, I, by the time I had to ring up and apologise to AP because at the end of it, so many people got in touch about it. Um, and I thought I did an absolute cracker this year, uh, which was a um, cartoon picture of David Bass and I and doing a cooking and making a cooking book with um, with Birdie having done the cartoon. I remember, yes. And everybody believed it. And it wasn't an April Fool. I've had people ring up and say, Cornelius, Rice at Ramiam said, I think you'll do a podcast on that or a TV program on it. I said, hang on a second, it's not what I was trying to do. It was meant to be a joke. Um, but it was the first April Fool's joke that I actually believed it was genuine. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I think a podcast is not really what I want to go and do. I mean, well, that's good. I can, yeah. In one less bit of competition. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. Um, no, I thought, you know, I can see social media for all the good things and I can see it for all the bad things. And, and uh, you have to work one against the other. Um, but at the end of it, you know, social media, when you go onto Instagram or you go on Twitter, if you're using it for the right reasons, it's a huge promotion to your sport and to your business. Major thanks to Kim then for his thoughts on how social media is affecting the racing landscape in 2021. Has the rap done social media now? Hell no. This subject has got plenty of legs, I feel, and is a constantly developing story. In a future episode of the podcast, I'd love to shadow a jockey for just one day and try and get an understanding of how he or she works, the physical and psychological pressures they're under as they do their jobs, and the part their social media feeds plays in that pressure. If you are a jockey and fancy being the subject of such an exercise, then please get in touch with me. Ha! ironically via our social media feeds on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. On to a quick takeaway from recent action on course, and that's specifically a look back at the Air Gold Cup. A little bit of scene setting here. This race is the most valuable sprint handicap in Europe, with upwards of 20 horses thundering down the six furlongs of Air's big wide straight. This year's renewal last weekend was won by the Kevin Ryan-trained six-year-old Bielsa, ridden by Kevin Stott from the 3-1 favourite Great Ambassador, ridden by Richard Kingscott. 
Those then are the bare facts of the race, but they mask several interesting points relating to form study, which is worth more than a passing glance, I feel. Bielsa was drawn highest of all in stall 25, and Great Ambassador was drawn lowest in stall 1. Form students will, and indeed did, burn lots of lean brain tissue, analysing the effects of the draw, not only for this race, but on the evidence of two other big field consolation sprint handicap races at air, spookily the bronze and the silver cups, which were run the day before and one hour respectively before the gold cup itself. Very simply, in those races, horse drawn low in stores 1 to 10 had dominated both the bronze and the silver cups. So, as is often the case, it became a self-perpetuating truism that these stores were the actual place to be drawn. Thus, Great Ambassador, yes, a very decent class horse, but crucially drawn in stall 1, was sent off at, for me, a prohibitively low price of 3 to 1. Comanche Falls drawn in two was also sent off at 13 to two and it's not hard to come up with a conclusion that punters had cottoned onto this supposed low draw bias and bet accordingly. This bias was also being talked up by race commentators immediately before the off adding further fuel to the low draw is a must narrative. A few points to note here though a cursory glance through the last 10 years results for the air gold cup showed that no horse drawn below four had won the race in this period. Secondly, the assiduous punter would have checked where the likely front runners, or pace if you like in racing jargon, in the race were drawn. Pace horses will often tow their fraction of the draw forward into the race at the expense of horses that prefer to be held up in their racing style to come with a late rattle at the end of the race. In this respect, I must point listeners of this podcast to the excellent ggs.co.uk website. GGs will often do an in-depth analysis of where the pace is in these big field handicap races, which they publish for free. So kudos where it's due to GG's Sam Darby, who shared his homework with readers last Friday evening when he explicitly concluded, quote, those drawn high seemingly need to be ridden aggressively, that is to take a lead or to race prominently, to be seen to best effect. Sam had nailed his colours to the mast that the place to be drawn was in fact high in terms of the likely pace scenario that would develop in the race. Finally, leaving aside these deeper aspects of form, draw and pace study, trigonometry dictates that the shortest line between two points is a straight line. Put simply, you cover the least amount of ground if you run gun barrel straight from your stall to the finishing line. In addition, in pure horse racing terms, not only do you cover extra ground attempting to secure a supposedly good race position where the draw bias dictates, chances are you would suffer interference with all the other riders and their mounts scrimmaging for said supposed good position during the race. Focusing in on the winner, Bielsa then, here was a horse that would have easiest access to a nice, solid nearside rail from his highest draw. He may be surrounded by other horses who prefer to race prominently and therefore lead him into the race. So, for example, Just Frank in stall 18 was a renowned tearaway frontrunner. But if he were left alone, with all others tacking over to the supposed good side of the track, then Bielsa would be quite at home playing his Billy No-Mates role based on his previous run in the Stewards' Cup, another big field sprint handicap cavalry charge, where he raced alone but ran very well. If you want to go really deep on the analysis of Bielsa, in his penultimate run, he'd raced in a crowd in a big sprint handicap at Royal Ascot, got bumped when making headway, and he clearly didn't like that, finishing 8th out of 25 on that day. Putting this all together then, Bielsa was a classy animal, with very few miles under his belt, so just the type that generally wins an air gold cup, 
who would probably have the race run suit to his Greta Garbo, I want to be alone style of racing, and thus it proved, under what many called an enterprising ride from his jockey Kevin Stott. Now that's a statement with which I half agree, but which comes with the caveat that ploughing a lonely furrow up the stand rail was arguably the only tactic that would have resulted in Bielsa winning at air last Saturday. Takeaways from all this? Well, firstly, do your own research. Make your own mind up about what are and aren't important factors in a race. And often it pays to keep it simple and try to simply find the best horse in the race, irrespective of its draw. Oh, and please do not take to social media, that again, after a race if your horse loses, and whine like a little bitch about how racing is bent, or worse, abusing the jockey and trainer. Well, ho, blessed ho, we appear to have come full circle here. A quick look at forthcoming action on course. And this Saturday's big betting race is another cavalry charge, the Bet365 Cambridgeshire Handicap, this time featuring upwards of 30 runners down the one-mile, one-furlong straight at Newmarket. It's one hell of a spectacle. However, the big storyline here is the Keith Dalgleish-trained Chichester, who was trading at 66-1 for this race this time last week, but has been backed into 9-1 third favourite as I speak on Thursday evening. This punt was inspired by a a six-and-a-half-length facile victory in a race last week at Ayr, and punters obviously feel he's well handicapped and in form, and have backed the horse accordingly, with that 9-1 I mentioned just now showing no signs of being the lowest at which he will trade. In addition to the Cambridgeshire, there are also three high-class group races for two-year-olds at Newmarket on Saturday. The Judmont Royal Lodge Stakes over a mile, the Judmont Cheveley Park Stakes for fillies over six furlongs, and the Colts Middle Park Stakes over a similar distance 35 minutes later. These races should shake up the betting for next year's Guineas, Derbys and Oaks, possibly, and make for an entertaining day's viewing at Newmarket, whether you're going live and in the flesh, or simply watching on ITV or Racing TV's coverage. That's it then from me for this episode. I've got to say, I never take your time listening to these podcasts for granted, which is why I'm so grateful for every download and every chat we have on the Raps Twitter and Facebook feeds. As I hope we've gleaned from this little soiree, please keep it clean and respectful. I'm sure you will. Rap listeners being svelte, urbane types, who are basically the creme de la creme of an already superior breed. So, on that bit of corny old pony and trap, Enjoy your racing, and until next time you meet, that's a wrap.